It's good to be sharing God's word with you again this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, and this morning we'll read from verse 23 to 26. Let's read together. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother has, uh, hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Let's, uh, let's pray before we get into God's word. Father, we just thank you once again for your precious word that you've given and preserved for us here. Lord, that we can read into it today. Father, we just thank you for the immense freedom that we have in this country to be able to meet in this way. And I pray, dear Lord, that we would uh, never take it for granted, that we would always make good use of the freedom that we have and the time that we have, Father, for your glory. And Father, we just pray now that as we look into your word, that your, your teacher, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, sorry. And Lord, that our hearts would be completely open to your word, Father, seeking to... to um, Accept every precept and every line and every thought and every uh, principle that comes through it. And we just pray that our lives will be changed by the washing of the water by that word. Father, we thank you once again for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Two weeks ago, uh, we discovered the first of five pronouncements or five points that Jesus was making concerning five specific laws. Okay, so we've got up to the point. We've gone past all the, you know, thou art the salt of the earth and, and the light of the world, and, and Jesus has gone through that, and now he starts, and then he sort of finishes that section by saying, and your righteousness, your, the, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, and now he he attempts to explain what that actually means, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers were the ones who were teaching the people about the truth. But they were doing a very bad job of it, to be honest with you. Very bad job of it because they were taking the law and keeping the parts they liked and getting rid of the parts they didn't like and they did not properly explain what it actually meant. So Jesus begins by focusing on five separate laws, all of which are found in the Old Testament. And he begins by delving deeper into them and explaining them a little bit more than what the, the people had heard of before. And there were two aspects to his teaching. At each point, he's going to try to explain two different things about it. Okay, And the first was that he was revealing the depth of God's law. In other words, if, if someone says, thou shalt not murder, it didn't necessarily just mean, don't take a gun and shoot someone. He went on to explain that... It was a lot more than just the physical act that God didn't like or the physical act where, where God said that's a sin. It was everything leading up to that. The law dealt not only with the act of murder, but the feelings, the initial feelings that come about that end up in things such as murder. 
Things such as anger towards someone else. And if you go back a couple of verses, it says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. And that judgment was going to court. Okay? But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And Jesus is saying, hang on a sec, in this new, if you accept this new kingdom on this earth and the laws that, that apply to it, then understand that even if you get angry with your brother without just cause, you could find yourself in the same court as someone who had killed someone else. How that works practically in our day is impossible. It could only work if God was the one who was sending you to, to, to court. Because a policeman walking down the street doesn't know whether I'm angry or not, does he? It can only work where God is the one who is saying, you're angry, off the court. You're angry with him without just cause, off the court. There's nothing to hide here. You can't, everything is laid bare in this thing, Okay. In verse 22, Jesus says, But I say unto you, Whosoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka, shall be in danger of the council, the high court. It's even worse. But whosoever shall say the fool, shall be in danger of hellfire and eternity, locked away. So the law concerned itself not just with the physical act. The law really concerned itself with condemning the heart, where the sin came from. You see, Jesus says that from the heart come all these things. Envy, lust, murder, adultery. All these things proceed from the heart and are spoken through the mouth, but then are acted upon in the flesh. So the law was concerned with the initial feelings of anger towards someone. And the very words that were spoken, even in the heat of anger. Ever spoken? Any, anyone ever regretted words that are spoken in the heat of anger? Ever regret those words? You know something? According to the law, you have no excuse. Those words that you spoke in anger, when you thought you were heated up and, and everything like that, God doesn't give you an excuse for that. You can't say to God, oh God, I was just angry at that time. I didn't mean what I said. No, in fact, God says, because you were angry and you spoke those words, you are guilty. The law condemns the heart before it reaches the physical act. The heat of anger is not an excuse acceptable to God in his court. And it goes well with the rest of scripture. Because Jesus says, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. The words that we speak, every idle word that we utter under our breath, where no one else is looking, God is measuring. This is the kingdom of God. In heaven, these things don't happen. The angels don't swear at each other. The angels don't mumble things under their breath against each other. The angels in heaven don't have thoughts towards each other like that. In heaven, these things don't exist. But on the earth, they do. 
the law, as Jesus was explaining, would be applied by the maker of that law, the way he saw fit. He, the Lord, would take into account the physical act of murder, the heart where the anger began, the words that arose from the anger and the intent. Even if you never physically killed anyone, God would judge the intent. If you wanted someone to disappear because you didn't like them, God would already judge that as murder. So the law would judge guilty anyone who was even angry without a cause or spoke badly to someone else. That's the first aspect. So Jesus was bringing out the actual depth of the law. And, and people in those days, as they are now, are guilty of the same thing. Because when you go to someone in the street and you say, have you kept the Ten Commandments? The first thing they'll say is, yeah, I haven't killed anyone. But yet their life could have been full of hatred towards other people, filthy language towards other people, hatred, anger, and murder within their hearts, even without it lifting a finger towards anyone else. You see, God judges all that. The second aspect of Jesus' teaching was that the law was much more severe than people had ever imagined. It was more severe. Yes, you may be guilty of a crime. If you break a law in our land, you may be guilty and have to pay a fine, correct? So if you break a, the speeding limit... If they find you guilty and they, they, they take your photo with a camera, you'll pay a fine. You'll lose a couple of demerit points or whatever it is. And for most people, that's no big deal, is it? But in God's economy, even those sorts of things are huge. The law is much more severe than people had imagined. The punishment in our, in our land for certain laws, for breaking certain laws, is minimal. But Jesus says, if you call your brother a fool, you could be condemned to an eternity in hell. Think of that for a moment. By saying, you fool, you could spend the rest of eternity in hell. Jesus says, for a slip of the tongue, you could be sent to the high court and have to pay a hefty fine. For the feeling of anger without cause, you could be sent to court to face a judge. Make no mistake here. Are you finding this a little bit hard? The people of Jesus' days would have found it exactly the same. They would have thought to themselves after Jesus' wonderful introduction, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And then Jesus says, now let me explain to you how righteous you have to be. Make no mistake, what would seem like an impossible standard for us today to keep if we heard this teaching seems exactly the same, would have seemed exactly the same for the people of Jesus' day. The times have changed, but the people haven't. The people haven't changed at all. The common folk hearing this, as well as the religious leaders of Jesus' day, would have been a little bit shocked at what he had said. How could anyone possibly achieve this standard and keep themselves out of prison, let alone hell? Can you imagine the thoughts running through their minds as someone said, if you've ever called your brother a fool, you're in danger of hell. 
Sure, Jesus was giving the, the greatest sermon of all time. Elegant, lofty, high in its ideal. But you know something? It applies to you and me. It applied to everyone. The person hearing that thing would have thought, how wonderful that is, until they realised, hang on a sec, those laws apply to me. I have to, I am under those laws. How about all those times I was angry with my brother, or my sister, or my parents, or my friends? How about all those words I've spoken with anger? How about all the times I spoke those words under my breath when I thought that no one was listening? Do I have to give an account for all those words? I can't even remember them. Is God able to bring me to court for my anger what no one could see? Even if it was only for a short time. God hold me truly accountable for every word and thought that I've had. I may never have murdered, but I have no hope of escaping this judgment. And this is exactly what Jesus wanted them to understand. This is exactly where Jesus wanted them to go. To use the law for the very purpose that it was intended for. To condemn and to judge. The law was made to condemn the sinner. That's the purpose of the law. Yes, Jesus was offering heaven on earth, wasn't he? Jesus was saying, I'm offering you the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'm, I will be the king of that kingdom. But let me explain to you what this kingdom will look like before you apply for citizenship. You'll be judged on every thought that you have. You'll be judged with every idle word that you speak. In fact, the time that you are angry with your brother, you will immediately be sent to the court. He was offering them the kingdom, and the kingdom is a beautiful place. I've heard it once said that God can't let sinners into heaven. True, isn't it? He can't let sinners into heaven. Because the very definition of heaven, by its definition, is that there is no sin there. And when God starts letting sinners into heaven, how long will heaven stay heaven? How long before people start bickering and fighting and hating? It can't. So in order for God to keep heaven heaven, he has to exclude sinners. And if the kingdom of God came down to earth, how long will the kingdom of God last if God allows sin to persist? The kingdom of God must the kingdom of heaven needs to have a very rigid system of judgment if it's based on the law now how would they respond to an invitation to become a citizen of this kingdom how would you respond if someone said to you okay I'm offering you a kingdom here the kingdom of heaven all the love and all the, all the things that comes along with heaven it'll be perfect but guess what if you're a citizen of that, of that kingdom, you have to be perfect. You can't be angry without cause. You definitely can't speak a word out of line. The moment you mess up, you'll be dragged into court. 
How many people do you think would be willing to put their hand up to be citizens of that kingdom in our state? And Jesus had only made reference to one law so far. And it was already looking impossible to keep. What about the rest of these laws? The bottom line would be once people had heard of Jesus' teaching, would they really want to be part of this kingdom? Well, we know the end of the story, don't we? Because in the end, they chose not to be part of this kingdom. They crucified him. This kingdom was not what they wanted, and he was not who they wanted. So they got rid of him. Now let's go to the next section that we're reading today. Jesus twists this now from the other angle. Okay? And after revealing the danger of getting angry to his hearers and the subsequent punishment that would take place, Jesus now looks at it from another perspective. What about if someone's angry with you? What about someone has something against you? Now, before we go to this next, read this next session, I want you to imagine in your heart, if someone said to you that Jesus had finished telling you, if you're, if you're angry with someone without cause, you're in danger of judgment. If you speak against your brother or speak to him in a tone that isn't right, that belittles him or puts him down, you're in danger of possible hellfire. Now Jesus says, now let me tell you about if someone's angry with you. The, the, in, the, the, the flesh of a person would automatically think what? Now, you're going to tell them, aren't you? If they're angry with me, you're going to say, yeah, it's going to be their, their problem. They're going to cop it now. He said Jesus doesn't do that. That was surely what Jesus would say. Well, they're wrong, because if you're angry with someone, you told me, Lord, that you know if I'm angry with someone, that's a sin, right? Without just cause. What happens if they're angry with me and they haven't got a proper cause? Surely they're the sinner. Now let's see what Jesus says about that. Verse twenty-three. Therefore, if they bring thy, thy gift to the altar and there remember that thy brother hath aught against thee, you know, aught is next to naught. Okay. Or is next to naught. Or is anything, anything against you. Okay, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Hang on a sec. I'm going to lose both ways here. I'm going to be judged for, for being angry with someone and speaking against someone. And now if someone's being angry with me and has something against me, I'm going to, I'm going to cop it as well. Something wrong here. I'm not, I'm not getting any... There's no latitude here for me to work with. Surely you've got to give me a break here somewhere. Jesus flips the discussion. To your brother having something against you. Does Jesus put the responsibility on the other person? No. He puts it back on me again. And says, if you remember that your brother has anything against you, 
before you even think of offering a gift to God. You better drop that gift right there and run and fix it up. Because there could be a situation where he'll say, look, he's done this against me, I want him to go to court. And if you go to court, it could be too late. Notice the onus is always on you, not on the other party. Your brother may be angry with you, and you know something? He'll pay for his own sin. But Jesus never gives you or I an excuse to accuse your brother first. He says you should make sure that your brother does not have any good reason to be upset with you. The need to restore your relationship with your brother, your brother, according to the Lord, is so important that you should stop whatever you are doing. Stop it then and there. And do you think this only applied to giving a gift before the altar of God? No, it would have applied to anything. He only gave this as the highest example because you might think that if I'm in the middle of doing something for God, the last thing I'm going to be doing is stopping that, isn't it? You might think that the loftiest thing I could do is actually offer a sacrifice to God and give him a gift. And Jesus says, uh-uh. Even before you do that, if anything comes to mind, you may have offended someone, you had better go and fix it up then and there. That's, it's not about the comparison between the gift to God and the brother. This is a thing about immediacy. This, this thing is about getting it fixed straight away. Why? Why do I have to be so quick that I have to drop my sacrifice and run? Because you may be paying for that sin. And if you pay for that sin, he says, you won't come out until that last farthing is paid. In this case, even your service to God takes second place to restoring your relationship or your sin. You should do it without delay, according to Jesus. Because if you wait, you may never get another chance to sort it out before you are judged and thrown into prison. And you will have to pay. In this case, Jesus is saying that your brother is your adversary. He's the one who is actually putting the claim against you. And you should be quick at reconciling because you could be paying for your indiscretion, however small it is, by judgment and prison. And you'll be cast into prison until you pay for that sin. The onus is not, is not only always on you to be faultless, but you must be on guard for anything that comes to your mind where you may have done absolutely nothing against someone and they may have taken the wrong way. And you must do it immediately. Because you could suffer for all of eternity for it. That's good news, huh? That's the good news. That's not the good news. That's not good news, I'm sorry. That's not the good news of the gospel as we know it. That is something I can't do. That's something I'm, I'm too weak at. And if I had to be judged for every time I said something or offended someone and then didn't do something about it and I forgot all about it, I'm in big trouble.
What we thought was impossible to keep before in the previous section has just become a whole lot harder to keep. Because I have to worry about not just what I do, I have to worry about what I have, the reaction that I get from other people as well. Even though I may not have even intended it. You know, if you, you drive your car into a, uh, into a, a store by accident by putting something in reverse instead of a uh, thing, will you have to pay for that? Yeah, you do. Even if my intention was not to do it, if I do it, I still have to pay. So your intention may not have been to offend your brother. Your intention may not have been to belittle them. Maybe what you said was benign. But if you break your brother's heart by the things you do or the things you don't do, then there is a, a judgment to pay for. And there are limitless scenarios you can come up with here. Limitless. But they can be classed in two separate things. Basically, it's either where you've dealt with someone not knowing that you've offended them, not knowing you've done something wrong, but by your omission or by some, some other way, you've offended someone and, and, and done something to them which they then carry. And you may be guilty without even realising it. The other, the other way is where you've actually purposely done something. Whatever reason, whatever the reason, you could be judged as guilty. Now I want you to understand that the primary motive here, look at the primary motive of this passage, for not getting angry with your brother or sister, or not speaking harshly to your brother or sister, or not being quick enough to make a restitution with your brother or sister, is... Judgment. The reason I go to my brother to reconcile myself, according to this passage, is if I don't do it, I'm going to be cast into prison. Correct? The reason I don't get angry with my brother is if I do it, I could get thrown into prison. The reason I don't call my brother fool or I, be, I have to be very careful about what I say, the prime motive for not doing that is judgment. Do you understand? The motive, the motivation for not doing these things. In all these cases, Jesus is describing the effect and consequence of breaking a command of God, the law. The point that Jesus is making quite clearly here is despite your best efforts, you will fail at keeping these laws. You will fail. And the only thing that the law of God can do for you is to condemn you. And you will pay for your sin. Did you notice there's no other motivation here mentioned in this passage? There's, there's other types of motivation we can go to for doing the right thing. But Jesus is speaking about the law here and the righteousness which comes from keeping the law. This is the result of the law. The law forces a person to focus on what? On their efforts. It forces me to think about what I have to do here. What do I have to do to keep myself out of prison? What do I have to do to keep myself from being fined? What do I have to do to keep myself from going to hell? It forces me to focus on my efforts, on my failures, on my successes. Hey, I made it for a week without offending someone. I made it for two days. I made it for three months. It who's the focus on here? Me. I'm the one who's trying to maintain this perfect record that I have. 
It's actually interesting as a side note here to understand that the concept of purgatory, who's familiar with the concept of purgatory? Purgatory is a place developed by the Catholic Church. Okay? It, was, it came up a fair bit later that uses these verses to actually justify it. And you might say, how does that work out? Well, they take, look at this, agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way. Lest at any time the adversary deliver to the judge and the judge deliver to the officer and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Come out. Come out of where? I mean, the only thing I know about God, that God judges after a person has died is heaven or hell. Okay? But what the Catholicism does is they'll actually take these verses and they'll spiritualise them and say, see this? You won't come out until you've paid the uttermost farthing. This refers to the believer who sins and those sins haven't been paid for. He'll have to pay for them after. So the concept of purgatory, if you look at it from this specific verse, if, you, if this verse or these few verses apply to a person having to pay for sins that weren't covered by the blood of Christ, okay, makes sense. Because this says, thou shalt by no means come out then, which means you can come out as long as you pay for that particular fine. So the Catholics have actually created this halfway house for those Christians who have the big sins already paid for, being as what? They've got a lot of other little sins. So what they do is they have to go to this other place where they pay for them. And if you've got a few people praying for you back at home, in your family, or you've got a few priests, or if you can pay some money to someone to pray some prayers for you, you'll get out quicker. That's the idea. Right? But if you've got no one praying for you, you're paying for those sins. And then when you've paid for all those sins, then you can go to heaven. Okay? So that's the idea. But does this verse teach about a purgatory? I don't think so. I think the Bible clearly teaches that there's no third place that a person goes to. There are two. One is heaven and one is hell. And eventually hell will be, will be thrown into the lake of fire as well in the end. If this passage is spiritualised in any way, it may be interpreted that any unpaid sin must be paid for after a person dies. But if this passage does not refer to after death, all right, if this passage, if these few verses don't refer to after you die, then it refers to when you're living, right? Therefore, it has to refer to a judicial system not yet existing on this earth. That doesn't exist. Because tell me which, out of all the, the, the kingdoms and countries in this world, which judicial system has something in it that actually judges the anger of a person? That could even measure the anger of a person. Imagine going into a court of law and someone says, he was angry with me. All right? What's your defence going to be? Well, no, it wasn't. And how is a judge going to even measure that? Unless God is in the middle of it. God is the one who's actually saying, you were angry. This judicial system does not exist anywhere in the world today.
If that judicial system was in place, then these, these verses would make sense. We know the scripture doesn't teach this either. There is no judicial system in place that takes this into account. We also know that a person can't be justified by keeping the law. Scripture teaches that very, very clearly. And the law was designed by God to drive a person to seek for his mercy and his grace. That's what the law was designed for. To show you that you are a sinner and you cannot save yourself. The law was designed to drive you to Christ. Once a person has been saved by the grace of God, by placing their faith, their trust in Jesus to save you, the law has done its work. It did what it was designed to do. When you call upon Jesus to save you and have believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you are saved and you are given a new divine nature. It's planted within you. This nature has the very heart of God at its core. You are no longer the old you, but the Bible says that a new you has been created in God's image. Where once you sought to obey the law that you might not go to hell, the grace of God has now not only saved you from hell, but given you heaven as well. Heaven was not something I have to earn. He saved me from hell, but now I've got to try and work my way to heaven. No. God has both saved us from hell and given us heaven as an inheritance. Imagine it. Where once I was on my way to hell with no way and no chance of saving myself, regardless of how hard I tried to keep those laws, God said, here, let me give you something. And he did. He not only saved me from hell, he gave me heaven. I never earned it. We can now truly love because we have experienced the love of God. The Bible says we love God because he first loved us. You can now have grace because grace has been extended to you. And you can now have mercy because you have been shown mercy. This amazing reality now affects us in every way that we treat people, especially our brethren. Let me explain to you how grace now changes the whole thing about, instead of worrying about going to hell or going to prison, let me show you now how grace works. When you bring your gift to the altar, you're more likely to consider your relationships to others in this world and how they affect your relationship with your Lord. You see, because your relationship with your Lord is precious to you. And when I have a broken relationship with someone else, I'm much more likely to go to them and say, brother, have I done something to hurt you? And it's not because I'm worried about being sent to hell. It's because I truly love my saviour and I love my brother. If you have a broken relationship, you want it restored quickly because you truly love that person and you love the Lord. And you don't want anything to come in between that relationship. When you bring your gift to the altar, you're reminded that you really owe everything to him. Not that you have anything really to give him, do you? Because every good gift comes from above. And whatever, everything I had that's good in me has already been given to me from him. So I don't come before him with any pride or boasting. When you bring your gift to God, it's with praise and thanksgiving. 
because I have nothing to boast in. I can't have any pride here. There is nothing in me that, that, that would warrant any praise from myself. My focus is no longer on me. My focus is on my Saviour. If you're a child of God, you have reconciliation in your heart. You understand what it means because at one stage you were an enemy of God. You hated him. Whether you understood it or not, you didn't like God. You didn't want anything to do with God. But then God reached out to you and me and reconciled us through the sacrifice of his son. He showed me how much he wanted me in this relationship. And he condescended to me while I was steeped in sin. So the overflow that comes to me from God because of the love that he showed to me, I can now allow to flow to other people. And my heart is the same as God's because God loves reconciliation. He hates broken relationships. The new nature within me understands that I've been given forgiveness. Forgiveness for all my sins. I'm now free. And when I'm free, I can truly forgive other people. Because I understand how much I was forgiven. I can then go to someone who's, who's hurt me and offended me and I can say, I forgive that person. Even before they come to me. Even before they say anything of repentance. I can go to them. Because my heart is the same as God's. The heart of God is to always to reach out. Is always a proactive one. And even if they reject my offer, even if I, I go to, if I've offended someone and I say, please forgive me, if they say, I don't want anything to do with you, I never give up on that person. Or if they've offended me, okay, and I go to them and I extend a, a rec reconciliation to them and they say, I want nothing to do with you, I don't care that I've, I've offended you, I never give up on that person. So when Peter says, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? And seven times? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Don't bother keeping count. Never give up. That's why the, why the scriptures say love always perseveres. It endures. It hopes. Love never gives up. The law gives up. You break the law, it condemns. End of story. Love never gives up. And the reason we can never give up on our brethren, the reason we can continue to pray for those who are not walking with the Lord now, the reason we never give up on them is because God never gave up on us. And he still doesn't. God persists with us. He's patient with us. In the midst of all our flaws and all our problems and all the things that we find ourselves doing and shouldn't, that shouldn't be doing, God is patient with us as a gentle father. The believer who thinks that they have hurt their brother is more likely to go and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Because you know something? How easy is it? Let me ask you a question. You've offended someone and you think you've offended them because they're not acting towards you the same way they normally act. Okay? How easy is it to go to that person and say, uh, have I done something wrong? Sometimes it's a fearful thing to have to approach a person who you think you may have offended. But the beautiful thing about love is that love Perfect love casts out fear. 
So the love that God has planted in our hearts is able to overcome all the fear that you may have to reconcile yourself to your brother. Because sometimes when you go to someone, you may be thinking to yourself, he's going to really tell me off. He's going to really give it to me if I go to him and say, I've done this, I know I've done something wrong. But real love overcomes that fear. Second Corinthians 5.18 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we have a job. We have a job. Our job is to encourage reconciliation, first of all between God and man, and then between each other. And then it says, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ. We have a job to do. We have a position that we hold. We are indeed the lights of the world, not because we shine any type of light, but because the light of God has been planted in us and shines through us. You have been called, my brothers and sisters, to make a difference. A difference in this world. You've been called to fulfil your new citizenship. I like what Jean said the other day to the, um, the fellow in the hospital. They brought her in the hospital. Jean, had, for those of you who don't know all the details, Jean had collapsed at home. She, I think she'd passed out for about an hour or so. Uh, she was severely dehydrated or suffering some sort of an allergic reaction to the medication she was on. And they brought her into hospital and, uh, and Jean thought to herself, this could be it. And the doctor, the doctor went there and, and spoke with her. I'm not sure if it was a doctor or the nurse. And she said, she said, oh, I'm ready to go to glory. And the doctor would have looked at her and go, glory? Where, where is that the particular? She goes, no, I've got my passport and it's stamped J-E-S-U-S. God bless them. That's the confidence, isn't it? Of knowing what Jesus Christ has done for you. We've been called to make a difference. We've been called to fill that, that passport, that J-E-S-U-S passport, to fulfill it on this earth while we still live here. We are no longer under the condemnation of this law, but free to love, love God and love our neighbour, because he has set his Holy Spirit within our hearts. The same Holy Spirit that led Jesus through his life is the very same one that God has now planted in your heart who leads you. The question is, how well are we listening to him? How much room do we make for him? Have we given him the whole heart? Or if we, we want to just keep him to the side and just let, you know, let him out a little bit when we, when we feel like it? We are no longer under the old way which condemned the sinner, but we are, what the Bible says, in a new and living way, created to follow and be like Jesus. Let me conclude with, a, with a, this contrast between law and grace. Okay? Under the law... Right. Turn with me to Haggai, chapter 2, verse 11. I want to show you something interesting about infection. Haggai, chapter 2, verse 11. 
Are we there? Haggai's a little book, not too big. A lot of feverish. Those, those last few pages make it really hard, don't they? Okay, Haggai chapter 2, verse 11. Now, listen to this carefully, this passage, okay? And I want you to, I want you to understand. This is what we're trying to, trying to understand here. What happens... What is the relationship between that which is clean and that which is unclean in the Old Testament? Okay? So according to the law, what's the relationship between the clean and unclean? Look what it says here. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying... If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, no. All right, so get this. Someone's a priest who's holy within himself. Okay, If he touches any of these things which are common, whether it's bread or pottage or wine or oil or meat, will they then become sanctified and holy? Right? And the answer is no, according to the law. That which is holy, if it touches that which is not holy, doesn't make it holy. Now look at the rest of them. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, the same things, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me. Okay. Look at the, look at the principle here. If something is sinful, if something is, sorry, holy and touches that which is common, right, it doesn't make it holy. But if something which is sinful touches that which is common, what does it do to it? Pollutes it, it makes it unholy. You got the principle? This is what the law does. The law doesn't make holy, doesn't make holy. The law says that only the unholy has an influence and is infectious toward the holy. The sinful corrupts the holy always. The holy does not infect the sinful. Now, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse twelve. Look what it says here. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any if any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him. Let him not put her away. Okay, so if, you, if you're married to an unbelieving husband or, or a spouse, okay, or a wife, Paul says here, don't put them away. In other words, don't leave them. Okay? Now keep that in mind. So his advice is don't leave them. Then he says in verse 13, And the woman which hath an, un, uh, an husband with that believeth not, and if, she be pleased to dwell with, uh, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Why, Paul? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. 
But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? You know what this tells me? This tells me that in, in this dispensation, in this New Testament, in this new covenant that God has, has, has opened the door for, this one where Jesus has initiated by his own blood and his, in his death on that cross, what this tells me is that the holy can infect the unholy. The holy, that which has been sanctified, when it touches the common, can make it good. You are the holy. You are the ones that God has sanctified. You have been called to make a difference in this world. That's why we are free. You're no longer under the law. We are free in Christ. And we are free. That's why people had such a struggle with Jesus eating with sinners. Because they thought to themselves, if Jesus even touches one of these guys, he's going to be infected with sin. That's why they struggled with all of that stuff. Our Saviour had such a, a relationship with God that whoever he touched was healed. Whoever he, he, he came across was changed for the good. This is our calling. Our calling is to make a difference because we can. Not because, not because of anything good in ourselves. But you know something? God has lit us like the, one of those ever-ready bunnies, right? With full of energy. And we don't stop. And God says, now go and make a difference in this world. Just because you touch other bunnies doesn't mean you're gonna, your batteries are going to die because we have, we have batteries that don't end, don't end here. In fact, if you touch the other ones around you, you will get them moving as well. This is our calling. This is what we've been called to do, to infect this world with holiness and love and grace. Do you understand your calling here? Do you understand your mission? Because God has called us to this incredible thing. We can be and been called to be a blessing to our families, our friends, to the world. And we can do this without fear. This is why the child of God seeks reconciliation and doesn't want to offer God something that's stained with hypocrisy. Genuine salvation results in a genuine heart. I'm just going to close up with a, um, just with a, uh, a comparison. I found this on the, on the internet and I thought this was absolutely fantastic. I'll just read this out to you and we'll close. The law says, this do and thou shalt live. Fair enough? Grace says, live and then thou shalt do. Grace gives you life first and then you do it. The law says, pay me that thou owest. Grace says, I fully forgive thee all. The law says, the wages of sin is death. Grace says, the gift of God is eternal life. The law says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Grace says, whosoever believeth on Jesus, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth on him shall never die. The law pronounces condemnation and death. Grace proclaims justification and life. The law says, make you, a, make you a new heart and a new spirit. Grace says, a new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. 
The law says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Grace says, Blessed is the man whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. The law says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Grace says, Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but he first loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation of our sins. The law says of what man must do for God. Grace tells of what Christ has done for man. The law addresses man as part of the old creation. Grace makes man a new creation. The law demands obedience by the terrors of the law. Grace beseeches men by the mercies of God. The law demands holiness. Grace gives holiness. The law says condemn him. Grace says embrace him. The law speaks of priestly sacrifices offered year by year continually, which could never make the comers thereunto perfect. Grace says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, by one offering hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. The law declares that as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Grace says, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. By grace are you saved. You see the difference? Have you been saved by the grace of God this morning? Can you say with a certainty in your heart this morning that you have within you eternal life and are walking all the way with your Saviour? The Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Brothers and sisters, if you don't know Jesus as your saviour this morning, don't delay. You may never walk, you may not survive walking at that door. You may never get another chance to accept Jesus as your saviour in this morning. And every moment that you waste, you will rue. You will hate. I do. Don't waste another day without him. How can you say no to the man who still bears the marks in his hands and his feet for you? Who still calls you and is patient with you? How can you say no to him? Who willingly gave you his own life so that you might have life. If you are not sure about your eternal state this morning, I'm not calling you to embrace your religion. I don't call you to embrace religion, but I call you to embrace a saviour. Accept that love that he's offering, because that's what it is. Accept love so that you can then love. That's what it's all about. And if you aren't walking with him this morning, understand who you are and who you've been called to be. You are no longer a citizen of this, of this world, but you have been called a citizen of heaven. You've been given a new nature. The Spirit of God lives in you. You have nothing to fear. That's why the Bible calls us more than we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. He won the victory for us already. We should celebrate that victory each and every day of our lives.
If there's any here who doesn't know Christ this morning, please come and see me. Please come and see me after this after the service. And if you aren't walking with the Lord this morning, come and see me as well, and we'll pray together. How's that sound? We'll spend some time in prayer so you can walk with the Lord again. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we indeed do thank you for this time. We thank you for your precious, precious word. And we thank you for the love of our Saviour who went to the cross for us. Father, that we might live lives that are worthy of the calling with which you are called. Father, we might live lives as his hands and his feet in this world. That we might understand the incredible opportunity we have to make a difference in this world. Father, energise us by your grace. Lead us by your spirit. And Father, if there are any here who don't know you this morning, Father, I pray that they would humble themselves before your mighty hand, that they would understand and admit that they're a sinner, that they cannot keep the law and save themselves from eternity in hell. But Father, that they would run to the Savior and embrace him with all their strength, that they would call him their Savior and their Lord, understanding what he did for them. Father, if there are any here this morning, I pray that your spirit will be working on their heart even now. They they would, before they leave this place, have Jesus as their saviour. We thank you for this time once again. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness and the love that you show us each and every day. And Father, we ask that you would give us a special blessing this morning as we depart from this place. Father, help us to make a difference. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. David.